Hello and welcome to the Becker's Health IT Plus Revenue Cycle virtual event. We are so excited to have you join us for today's session titled, What are the biggest threats and opportunities in health IT? The pandemic has accelerated trends in telehealth, remote work, data analytics, and precision medicine. It required IT teams to collaborate more with their organizations and communities to work in tandem to develop innovative solutions to critical problems and breakdowns within the healthcare system. Now healthcare organizations are looking ahead to a more focused digital transformation and how that is executed will differentiate the good systems from the great ones. I am Laura Deirda with Becker's Hospital Review and I will be your moderator for today's panel. Before I introduce the panelists, I would like to go over just a few housekeeping items. We will have time at the end of today's panel for a short question and answer session. You can submit any questions you have throughout the presentation by typing them into the Q&A box you see on your screen. If we don't answer your question during the event, we will be sure to follow up with you after the event. We look forward to hearing your questions. You'll also find a few more engagement tools on your dashboard, so please be sure to check out the resources section and fill out the event survey. Finally, this session is being recorded and will be available on demand following today's event. We will send you instructions on how to access the on-demand recordings when this event concludes. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce our panelists. We have Dr. Andrew Alan Shaw, Vice President and Chief Medical Information Officer at Yale New Haven Health, and Matthew Monica, Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at BJC Healthcare, joining us for today's panel. I'll have both our panelists briefly introduce themselves. Matt, can we start with you? Sure thing. Thanks, Laura. So, uh, yeah, Matt Monica, I'm the uh, CISO here at BJC Healthcare in St. Louis. Uh, we're a regional healthcare system uh, with operations in Missouri and Illinois. I've uh, been with BJC for just over three years, and prior to that, I was in the financial services industry as well as other, uh, other healthcare industries. Great. And Alan, could you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? Of course. Uh, thanks, Laura. Uh, so I'm Alan Shaw. I'm the Chief Medical Information Officer for the School of Medicine and Yale Neighborhood Health System, also faculty in pediatrics. And on the weekends, I practice uh, medicine as an emergency physician in our children's hospital. Fantastic. Well, thank you both for being here with us today. I'm really excited for this discussion. I want to begin um, talking a little bit about telehealth and virtual care. My first question is for Alan. Healthcare organizations rapidly deployed telehealth during the pandemic. Looking ahead, what do you need to do to make virtual care even better? Yeah, thanks, Laura. That's a great question. Um, you know, I think for us, like many institutions, we really ramped up telehealth and virtual care, uh, you know, uh, systems uh, very, very quickly with very little notice because of COVID. And I think now as we look forward uh, to the future, what we need to do is really make things much easier for our patients. Uh, everything from more friendly user interfaces uh, to compatibility with a whole range of consumer devices, ideally not just smartphones and the late model ones, which typically you know, current platforms are uh, only compatible with, but maybe even other consumer devices like tablets, some of the speech activated devices that you know, of, uh, uh, you know, patients have at home uh, that have cameras built into them uh, would be great if they, they can actually help them uh, enable virtual care. Um, and we need to figure out how to kind of bridge the digital divide as well, because I think we have a lot of patients who, uh, you know, don't have internet and have, you know, easy access devices, uh, but they're actually the ones who also uh, would most benefit from the great access that virtual care can provide. 
uh, they may not have the transportation or the financial resources to be able to get and seek care at, a, at, a, at you know a specialty hospital that might be you know out of their neighborhood or even you know fairly remote. Um, but virtual care telehealth really has the potential to really bridge that digital divide. So I think we have to kind of find ways to to address those uh, differences as well. Got it. That makes a lot of sense and is definitely a huge topic of conversation I know of many institutions. Could you talk a little bit about some of those roadblocks that clinicians are facing um, to optimizing the virtual care? Obviously, the access for patients to great technology, as you pointed out, is one that's huge. Um, but what other types of roadblocks are they facing when they're trying to make sure they give the same type of care to patients virtually as they would have in the office? Sure, that's a great question too. Uh, you know, I think it's it's a whole range of things. It's it's one even just getting more experience themselves, so they become comfortable with what, what they can accomplish over you know telehealth and telemedicine. You know, how can they not just visually examine a patient, but maybe even help ask the patient to help you know with their own exam if they have some abdominal pain. You know, walking them through palpating you know a certain part of the abdomen, then letting them know how that feels. You know, little tricks and things that I think physicians are now learning over time. Um, but I think, you know, even more basic is another roadblock is just how to, how we, as you know, healthcare systems set up a sustainable virtual care infrastructure, um, not just the technology part, which obviously is very important, kind of alluded to some of those things earlier, but also the support personnel and the operational workflows for virtual rooming. Uh, so with COVID, you know, we had a lot of, you know, in, you know, in-person, you know, medical assistants and nurses who, you know, we were able to kind of redeploy and train them up to kind of provide some of those services because they no longer were uh, needed to be, you know, rooming patients physically because we, you know, shut everything down for COVID. But now that we've ramped back up to almost our normal volumes, though all those great staff are no longer available to help with telehealth visits. So I think we, like many health systems, you know, now are scrambling to figure out what is that right infrastructure. So we have support people who can help reach out to the patients help them with troubleshooting with the technology, help connect them to the physician, um, because, you know, that that's something that, you know, just is really, really critical, but not something that we've all really been resourcing and thinking about because we didn't have this huge demand uh, before. And frankly, it's hard to find, you know, I think the right, all the right talent and the numbers we need uh, to kind of support that. And so for our physicians, it's really hard to pinpoint why a video or audio might not work uh, during, during a visit and they don't have the time uh, nor the patients uh, or the training to troubleshoot uh, necessarily. So, um, you know, folks that can help them with that uh, are really, uh, really valuable. As I'm sure for uh, many physicians, adding IT specialists to their uh, many hats that they wear is a challenge. Um, so one more question for you, Alan. Sure. What do you think the next evolution of telehealth will be? As a uh, great question. So I think, you know, um, it's, it's going to be evolving to just, you know, I think more simple platforms, uh, hopefully. Uh, you know, I think, and, and we, I think like other places are taking some of those steps already. For instance, you know, now that um, at least in, in our area, you know, and I know it's not the case, unfortunately, in, in, in large parts of our country, but, uh, you know, COVID sort of, you know, uh, not been quite as acute here. So we've kind of taken that breather and installed an, you know, an, a new version of our telehealth platform. One that now, in, in, you know, incorporates, you know, some RTC technology so patients don't have to have a separate app. That's a nice step forward, uh, I think, uh, in, in that. Uh, and it'll hopefully make things easier for our patients and our doctors so they can use all types of devices. They can use their laptop, doesn't have to be that, that smartphone. 
Um, but I think, you know, that's just the beginning. Uh, if you think back to, you know, where the telephone is, we take it for granted. And now we have cell phones and these smartphones that do these amazing things. But when phones were first invented, uh, kind of like today, you had to have operators uh, kind of connect, you know, one patient to the, you know, one caller to the other. And you had these switchboards and lots of people involved. Uh, you didn't have, you know, telephone numbers where someone could reach someone directly. And, you know, then it was rotary phones then touchstone, then VoIP. I think, you know, telehealth technology will hopefully uh, get easier to use um, for everyone. Um, and maybe just as FHIR and HL7s really allowed, you know, for EMRs to have bi-directional exchange of information and even orders, hopefully in the future, telehealth platforms won't be quite um, so proprietary and tied to one vendor. Uh, instead, hopefully open up opportunities for patients and physicians to connect no matter the geography or what the local health system landscape might be. And then, of course, our laws and regulations also will need to evolve, uh, you know, over time to, to allow this to happen. Because right now, I think a lot of, you know, these state laws and things are, are, are roadblocks to virtual care really to reach the potential that it could. Um, but with some of those changes in technology and, 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 and laws and regulations, we can really hopefully democratize access to healthcare for patients and uh, they can get great help uh, no matter where they live, no matter how rural or far away they might be from a specialist they really want to reach. That sounds like it would be fantastic when and if that future comes to fruition. Um, Matt, I have a few questions for you now as well from the security perspective. What do you consider to be the biggest security concern when it comes to virtual care? Yeah, yeah. So I would say, you know, time and time again in the security world, um, it all comes back down to the human, right? So, um, you know, technology, while it can be bypassed and surpassed, et cetera, uh, at the end of the day, it comes back, comes down to the person behind the screen um, that's either receiving the care or giving the care or whatever it might be in this case for virtual care. And so, you know, more specifically, if I, if I had to articulate the risk around virtual care, now, my concern isn't necessarily the healthcare providers um, because you know typically we have uh, we have security teams, we have strategies, we have protections that are in place, we have things that we have to do to to maintain privacy of data, etc. Um, but I really worry more so on the on the flip end, on the other end, um, with the, with the patient, um, right? And the fact that uh, you know very similar to the the COVID response of a lot of companies having to move their employee base. Uh, from a kind of known working environment into a, into an alternate work site, whether that be your home, your kitchen, whatever it might be, right? Um, and those environments don't necessarily, they're not conducive to privacy. They're not conducive to security all the time. You know, you have uh, different different things on your network, as an example, that may not be as secure as, as one would like. Um, and so, I, you know, I think in general, it's really that unknown of, okay, you know, we can do and pull a lot of levers and, and, and provide a lot of options for security for our patients ultimately. But at the end of the day, these, the virtual platforms are gonna to have to offer various levers to say, um, what is your own risk tolerance as a patient, right? Am I okay with sharing my data? Am I not okay with sharing my data? And if so, you know, what about video? What about other kinds of things that are around there? And so, um, you know, that's, I'd say that's the top, the top piece. Um, and then the other piece too is is really just how do we how do we ride that line ultimately of what is a healthcare provider responsible for and uh, required to do as a kind of a minimum basis of, of privacy and security 
um, in these solutions, uh, or you know, what is the what is the patient or the consumer ultimately responsible for? So, um, so in, in summary, you know, the human <laughs> at the end of the day is probably the biggest threat. Um, although you know, there are bad guys and, and girls all over the place trying to trying to figure out how they uh, how they take advantage of virtual care going forward. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I want to dig just a little bit deeper into the component of remote work, whether it's the clinicians doing telehealth work or some of the other team members working remotely. Um, what do health systems need to do to support the widespread remote work or a hybrid model? Obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic, it happened very quickly. And now as systems are kind of um, easing into this being a more permanent policy, what do they need to do to make sure they stay secure and um, continue to meet, you know, compliance standards as they uh, tighten up in the future? Sure, well, that's a great question. I'd say, you know, the bad guys and <laughs> girls, again, are, are really taking advantage of the fundamentals, right? So they're, they're expecting someone um, to act quickly, to click on a link, to open an email, to open attachment, whatever it might be. And while we still see some very pointed um, attacks and very pointed, you know, more sophisticated kind of attacks, um, the bottom line is the majority of breaches today are really the result of, of a failure of some sort of some sort of fundamental control, right? Whether that's a, you know, whether that's antivirus, whether that's something else, right? Of just not being there. Um, so from a healthcare provider perspective, you know, we've, we've done a lot of things around how do we mitigate as much of that risk as we can. We're never going to be 100% perfect, but we're going to try to get there ultimately. And so a lot of focus on email, um, a lot of focus on um, just what is what does normal behavior look like from a system perspective so you can identify what abnormal looks like. Um, that has to do with monitoring and instrumentation and making sure those things are in place. Um, you know, the other piece is really around um, what a lot of security professionals call zero trust and a zero trust strategy. And so, you know, really what enabled uh, us to, to move to, uh, to an alternate work arrangement or alternate work sites ultimately is, was really um, the adoption of cloud models, the adoption of um, various software as a service capabilities um, that were not necessarily hosted within our four walls ultimately. Uh, so as an example, you know, so the, the office, uh, the office productivity tools that we have, um, you know, they are hosted in the cloud and they have what's called conditional access around them. So regardless of where you access um, our environment, we have certain controls that follow the data or follow the user ultimately around. And that's really, in general, the, the zero trust kind of approach or strategy is really how do you protect the data where it sits and how it's being accessed and by whom um, ultimately. So so that's really where I see organizations needing to move is, is to that zero trust model is more to the, you know, how do you protect the data and the crown jewels that you're trying to protect? And then how do you prevent people from being taken advantage of ultimately? That's a great point. And obviously a, a huge amount of effort and energy is put there. Um, just really quick before I have another question for Alan. Um, do you expect there will be more uh, cyber attacks going forward over the next 12 months, fewer, or just about the same? Um, I think it's been proven there's more. <laughs> so, so I, uh, you know, you talk to any, any of my colleagues, really, regardless of industry, um, and the bad, bad guys are having a field day, 
right? Um, as, as mentioned before, they're, they're really, um, and they're having a field day because of what I talked about earlier around uh, the fact that as individuals move to different work sites and use different computing platforms or their personal computers or personal uh, mobile devices, things like that, um, you know, security is not always top of mind and, and people don't always have the best hygiene when it comes to uh, keeping their devices up to date and things like that. Uh, whereas from a corporate perspective or from a healthcare provider perspective, you know, we have some things in place that can help maintain and keep those things up to date. Um, but when it moves to a personal device, you know, we lose some of that control ultimately. And so, um, so I, I, I know the attacks are on the rise, right? And I know that there will be a, we, that healthcare will be continue to be a target ultimately, just because they were, were critical infrastructure. Got it. That makes sense. Thank you so much for going through all that with me. Um, my next question for Alan is around data and analytics. How is Yale New Haven Health using clinical analytics today, and what do you expect in the future? Yeah, uh, thanks, Lars. Great question. Um, so, you know, we are a data-driven organization. Uh, in fact, we have, uh, you know, uh, over the last five years consolidated a joint data analytics team for both our health system and our school of medicine. And so even though they're actually two very separate entities, um, they are brought together by our patients that we have in common uh, and our common EHR foundation. And so, uh, you know, this single team now really accomplishes and, and creates the, the data analytics for both entities. Uh, so we have a common, you know, language, common, you know, truth. Um, and they've been very experienced with the kind of the traditional retrospective reporting, using data to identify and drive lots of uh, things that we, we, we have a whole great system called clinical redesign, where uh, using data, we identify all these opportunities for improving patient care, decreasing length of stay, uh, saving money, uh, frankly, uh, which has been, you know, really critical for us as we, you know, now look to navigate, you know, this whole, you know, COVID craziness. Uh, and the difficult financial times, uh, you know, that is for all of us. Um, and so, you know, with the clinical redesign work and with this trained analytics team, they've taken a lot of steps to now create these real-time monitoring tools and dashboards uh, for our quality and, and, and um, operational leaders uh, so that they can monitor, you know, the, the changes and improvements uh, as they, as they uh, happen over time. Um, and then, you know, we've also been moving to, you know, also real-time uh, use of analytics for things like bedside alerts to warn physicians of sepsis or acute kidney injury, uh, patient deterioration. Um, and then other ways we're using real-time data uh, is in our relatively new capacity coordination center, something we've set up over the last you know, few years where we've now co-located you know, uh, operational leaders from bed management, custodial services, local ambulance co company, our infection control, patient transport uh, leadership, and they all work together to manage our hospital volumes using real-time data. Uh, and uh, as you can imagine, during COVID, this was incredibly helpful uh, to have, you know, those leaders and, and have, you know, this, uh, this one place where we knew uh, one view of all of our hospitals, you know, uh, beds uh, and patients and which ones, uh, you know, had COVID, uh, which ones were under investigation for COVID, uh, where we had planned surgeries and, and, you know, ED admissions that are waiting for a hospital bed what ventilators we had available um, of all types, you know, uh, including ones that, you know, uh, were, you know, uh, for, you know, anesthesia for, for the you know, operating rooms. But, you know, we, we literally ran, I think, one, one or two ventilators short of running out uh, at our peak uh, in, in April and May. 
Um, but, you know, I think it's just invaluable for us to be able to manage that crisis uh, by having that real-time data and that capacity coordination center and leadership. I think, um, you know, you asked about kind of what, what's going to happen in the future. Um, I think it's going to be much more of this, uh, certainly that we're already doing today. So we know where to deploy resources, transfer patients, you know, where do we need more PPE, for instance, if there's another surge of COVID. Um, but we also need to be more, much more predictive and more prescriptive. Uh, and that's sort of like the holy grail of analytics. Um, and so, you know, I mentioned earlier, we do have some of those, you know, sepsis and readmission and deterioration uh, kind of predictive analytics. Um, we're using predictive analytics to model our patient volume, our uh, OR caseload and how long a case might take um, and how long the, you know, the, the expected um, admission rate for the uh, length of the stay for that patient might be based on their comorbidities. So this all helps us kind of project, you know, how, uh, what our volumes might be and, and do we have any available beds down the road. Um, but I think we need to get much better where things are prescriptive and then automatic interventions can kick in so that, you know, automatically so that, you know, a rapid response team or a nurse might be deployed to evaluate a patient who's getting sicker um, and uh, maybe other, you know, other interventions too, but we need to learn how to do this. And, you know, we are doing it on a small scale with our tele-ICU um, but we really need to do this for all of our patients and all of our beds and uh, it's definitely a, a journey to get there uh, but i think you know the future is analytics will help, uh, will really help us take much better care of our patients uh, and have you know computers are watching 24 7 for the smallest little changes that might be really significant but might not be picked up by a human until later that makes sense how far away do you think Yale is from realizing that future prescriptive analytics and predictive analytics, um, you know, on a broader basis or to have that ideal with every patient and not just a few in the ICU? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think it will depend on resources. I think we certainly have the desire and the vision for it. Um, as I mentioned, we're doing it with our tele-ICU and, and that, that, that went from a very small program to, you know, now we have, you know, uh, intensivists and, and nurses monitoring hundreds of patients over, uh, you know, our, our uh, six hospital campuses. Um, I think for us, it's going to be a matter of resources to get to that next level where we can have that same level of monitoring uh, and then build in some more automated things to monitor all the different beds. Uh, and then, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a, a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, you know, in that in the ICU, there's so much data because the patients, vital signs of things are constantly monitored. What we need to figure out is how do we make some of these same interventions and monitoring when we have uh, less frequent data points um, and that that'll be a challenge too but and i think we're going to make a lot of progress over the next two or three years um, and and really be able to you know come closer to that vision that makes sense thank you so much um, Matt, my next question for you is, uh, what is the next evolution of data security for health systems as they continue to amass more information about patients? Yeah, another good question. I'd, I'd say, you know, as to what Alan actually just described, right, around, around the need for analytics and insights around that analytics and the, and the data um, and the volumes of data that a lot of health systems do have today. Um, you know, it's really, uh, and again, it's another kind of typical security professional thing. We think of things in kind of three contexts. One is confidentiality, integrity is the second, and the third is availability. And so from a confidentiality perspective, right, obviously um, we need to make sure that that data is protected uh, pretty much at all, at all times, right? And in accordance with the wishes 
um, and the acceptable use that our patients and others have, have defined ultimately as, as well as regulation, right? And making sure that we're following all the HIPAA privacy regulations and state regulations that might be out there, et cetera. And so, you know, we, we will have to build that in and, and a lot of organizations already are building that into, um, into the solutions that are being developed for virtual care and just other data analytics and insights ultimately. Um, from an integrity perspective, right? I mean, the data has to be there. It has to be, um, it has to be consistent. It has to be um, accurate, right? At the end of the day. And, you know, not always, security isn't always about people stealing the data. Sometimes it's about them tampering with the data and ultimately using that to manipulate something, whether that be for a financial benefit or outcome or for a potentially worse health outcome if you think about a, you know, threats in the healthcare industry. And so, you know, the integrity of that data, making sure that we are looking at the systems of truth and the systems of record for, um, as those key data elements change, and especially with the rate of change that's gonna occur with a lot of the IoT devices and the other things that are coming into play around virtual care. Um, it's wonderful, wonderful to have all that instrumentation, but you have to make sure it's all tied together and actually, you know, talking about the same patient at the end of the day. And so that's of critical importance. And then the third thing is really around availability of that data, right? And so once it becomes available and once those insights start to make their way to the patient and they can start making some decisions around their own health outcomes and also the physicians helping them and guiding them through, you know, ultimately getting to the outcome they're desiring, um, you know, it has to be available 24 seven, 365, anytime, anywhere, any place, ultimately. And that's at least that's my vision for what I would love virtual care to be in the future. So, um, you know, how do we build in the resilience into our systems? How do we make sure we have backups and recovery strategies that allow for that, right? And how do we allow for uh, appropriate downtime and availability of the data while we're patching systems and securing systems and doing some of the things that are required? Um, just to keep that data safe and, and ultimately uh, uh, integrated. So um, that's, you know, it's a lot, right? But, but ultimately, you know, like I said, back, back to the bottom three or the top three, it's, uh, it's confidentiality, integrity, and availability, and then uh, following through on that. Thank you for going through that with us. I think obviously a lot on your plate. Um, before we end our conversation, I want to touch a little bit on interoperability. Um, and Matt, my first question is for you. What problems um, does increased interoperability solve and what problems would it create for a health system or patients? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, as I think about my own health journey um, and, and what I want from a, from a you know, from an inter interoperability perspective, um, I think I said it earlier, I, I want it my way, my time, and my method, ultimately, right? So, you know, is it available? You know, how much of the data do I want to be able to share, ultimately? Um, does that get shared consistently across organizations? So can I switch from one provider to another um, at the blink of an eye? Um, because I feel like it, right, as a, as a consumer, right? So we, you know, from a... Um, uh, for our retail industry friends, right? They, they've figured this out a long time ago of if you build systems that demand immediacy and demand 
these kinds of capabilities. If you think about, you know, ordering food during the pandemic here, right, there's a lot of very simple ways that people have shifted and maneuvered to allow that to occur um, in a way that's that's appetizing to a consumer ultimately, right? Not just food being appetizing, but but in general being, you know, being able to get it my way anytime I want, ultimately. So so I think interoperability really serves, you know, that's the positives ultimately. It will enable that, right? It will enable us to be able to send that data wherever you need it to go ultimately and share that data with whoever you need it to be shared with. I think the challenge is just to speak around some of those are is the same you know the, the the positive is also the negative right so from from my perspective on the uh, on the availability and integrity side right so how do we make sure um ultimately that those you know that those changes in the landscape and that we're focusing on um ultimately the right things uh, from an availability and, and integrity perspective um you know there's going to be challenges in making sure that we can match patients and making sure that we can do that on a much faster um, almost instantaneous uh, method and methodology. I think regulations um, are need to catch up ultimately, right? So the HIPAA security rule is is very old. Um, it probably is in need of updating. If you look at it, it's it's relatively high level. There's not a lot of consistency in how people potentially look at how the specific controls around the data. Um, you know, the privacy world with GDPR and some of the other uh, states' uh, privacy regulations that are coming out, you know, those are some things that we're going to have to figure out as a, as an industry and we have to do it pretty quick. Um, and we have to have that, that consistency around that in order for all that, all the rules to be, um, well, consistent ultimately across all of the healthcare providers where you get your data and where you have your data stored. That makes a lot of sense. I know a lot of unanswered questions there and in terms of thinking about how all of the interoperability and the potential for personal health records would make a difference. Um, Alan, I want your perspective here as well. What challenges do you see for interoperability and some of the um, potential for personal health records? I'd love to hear your thoughts around that as well as, you know, really what your impression is of giving patients more control over their medical records. Um, and then, you know, making sure you keep them within the health system as much as possible um, in, in the event of that happening. Yeah, those are, those are some, well, some terrific questions. Um, so I think overall, you know, as a as certainly as an ED physician, uh, often trying to deal with, um, you know, uh, treating patients with, without all the information, interoperability is a great thing. Uh, and I think you ask any of our physicians, they would they would agree with that. Um, but at the same time, I think for our, for our clinicians, it's also uh, quite daunting because it's a lot of information overload. Uh, it's already so hard to keep up with everything in a single electronic chart uh, from, a, you know, from, a, from one system. Uh, now it's even more daunting when you have records available from multiple systems. Uh, and some of it's repetitive and duplicative and some of it's not. Um, and the personal records add even another level of complexity because you now have even a larger amount of data uh, that you may or may not have easy access to. And if you do have access to it, um, you know, how do you know what's validated, what's unvalidated data, um, and how do you easily deduplicate it or, and, and then add the information to what you already know that you do need to know. And then if you throw in mHealth devices that patients might connect to that personal health record, uh, it gets even more, uh, more of a daunting thing. Um, you know, I think one of the ways we're preparing for this um, is one of our well-known faculty, you know, Dr. Harlan Krumholtz, uh, cardiologist, 
uh, actually founded a PHR a few years ago. And so we've been working closely with him just on lessons learned, how do we make sure we're exchanging data appropriately um, uh, and, and kind of, you know, learning from, from those experiences. Um, and a really neat thing about that PHR is that in addition to the traditional clinical PHR content, it really also really empowers patients to participate in research and become digital donors uh, and participate in multi-centered clinical trials and things like that. Um, and uh, I think, you know, he's also, you know, Dr. Crum is also recognizing how much information overload is because he's also a practicing cardiologist. Um, and so within his PHR has developed a really nice timeline view. So you can look quickly at a glance and see all the different tests and exams and, uh, and lab results that a patient might have. And so, you know, that's something that, you know, we would love to be able to bring into our EHR and, and get some lessons learned from him there. Uh, and then, you know, we have been working with our EHR vendor to kind of find better ways to deduplicate data, show physicians um, internal external, external data in line for easier digesting. Um, and so I think, you know, there, there's just, that's, that's just a challenge that we are going to have with interoperability of data um, and the sheer mass of things. Um, so I think, you know, other things thinking down, you know, towards the future uh, and things we're already starting to work on today um, is, you know, ability to search information easily um, using natural language processing tools, perhaps, for the, some of the unstructured data, uh, perhaps using speech recognition to actually help you find things that you're looking for so a physician does not have to be at the keyboard and typing. Uh, and then our medical director for digital health is looking for ways to monitor uh, and, and escalate, you know, uh, changes uh, that might be concerning in some of the mHealth data that might be flowing in. Because I can tell you that's a big challenge for us today is our our clinicians don't have the time to be looking at all of the normal and and some ab abnormal values mixed in with all of the M Health devices that patients have that are constantly streaming in data. So we have to find ways to kind of take that burden away from our clinicians. And there might be some interesting applications of you know RPA in this space as well. Um, and then I think Laura, you had asked a, another great question in there with about uh, patient control uh, of their medical records and competition and. I think you're, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. There's going to be more competition, um, but, and, and, it, and I think that may keep us up at night worrying about the competition. In the end, it's the right thing for patients. Um, we, we simply do believe that we don't compete on patient data, patient information. We're not going to hold it hostage. Uh, it belongs to the patient and it should be easy for them to seek a second opinion, uh, take their data and their care elsewhere if they need to. Um, and so what we do need to do is compete based on the quality of care that we provide, you know, offer cutting edge research and clinical trials that maybe other places can offer um, and just make sure that we are responsive, have great patient experience. Um, but that's going to take a lot of work uh, and, and work that, you know, we're, we're, we, we're, we're doing and, and, you know, hope to be continue to be doing uh, and investing in as well. Um, but, but, you know, again, as, a, as an ED physician, um, I want that patient to have easy access to the data that you know, of the tests and things that I order, you know, for him or her. Um, and I want them to be able to bring me data that, you know, that uh, information of test results and things that they have had done in other institutions so that I can, I can take better care of them. Because I can tell you, it's very frustrating to be practicing in that vacuum where we know different things were done and the patient was told something was really abnormal, but they don't know what the result was. And and we can access the information, you know, well, that, that's not good for patient care. That's not good for us uh, in, in our health healthcare system in general, because ultimately it leads to more expense as we repeat tests, uh, leads to poorer care, uh, patients who get sicker, have longer, you know, hospital stays. 
really no one wins in those situations. So, um, you know, I think more competition, more control for patient records is, is a good thing for patients. Uh, and, uh, and, and we want that to, to happen more. Fantastic. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, I really appreciate both Matt and Alan you joining us today. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have, but I'm really looking forward to continuing the discussion in the future. All right, thank, thank you, you so much. much.